I'd like to begin this evening's talk with a few moments of sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama 2,600 years ago. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gautama. The arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow the last arrow left in the quiver, accompanied by the words, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? Where and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? The Bodhisatta, the just about to be Buddha, protected with the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of investigation, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced with the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gautama, sitting under the bow tree that night, with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence, as though he were an immovable mountain, With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how He was, and Mara was defeated, never again to gain a hold on the Buddha's heart and mind. And so we sit, maybe not always quite like the Buddha, but we sit, we practice, we sit and walk. Practicing here in retreat over a couple of weeks, or for some of you, over many months. And all of you, all of us, have practiced and will most likely practice 
intensively again in other places, at other times, alone and with others. Our aspirations and determination are often clearly and strongly felt and known. Though there are, at times, a paling of them. And maybe even occasionally they're forgotten in the unfolding of our lives. But certainly for us, more often than not, they're woven into the constitution of our lives. And so as we do practice over the years, through this lifetime, the particular qualities of mind and heart that were so perfectly matured, unfabricated, and prompted, and at that amazing point in time, all perfectly in place, when Siddhartha, that night under the bow tree, sat. As we practice, these capacities of mind and heart continue to grow, continue to deepen and develop, continue to mature and be known within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we keep practicing. A few evenings ago, Miyoshin began exploring the first enlightenment factor, mindfulness, with you. I sometimes think of mindfulness as the great mother, the great mother of all of the factors of enlightenment. In fact, the great mother of all of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor that gives birth to all of the other factors necessary for awakening. And with its establishment, along with the second factor necessary for awakening, investigation, discrimination of states that we'll explore together this evening, with the establishment and blossoming of mindfulness and investigation, we're afforded the greatest protection. The Buddha speaks about mindfulness as being like a precious gem and called it the chief, maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. So we could say that mindfulness and its most active component, investigation, discrimination of states, as being the chief mother. I'd like to offer a suggestion regarding the way that you take in the exploration of these seven factors of awakening during these two weeks. The suggestion being to consider the possibility of letting the words be a touch point or a pointing out 
towards directly connecting within yourself, connecting with your own body, mind, and heart with the qualities of each of the seven factors. I found from my own experience that this is facilitated by what we might call listening from the heart, not from the head. And in support of this, it's helpful to deeply relax in and through the body. So taking just a moment to check in to your body and relaxing from head to toe. Dropping into the body with a bright attention. Relaxed and brightly alert at the same time. Letting the whole body, mind, and heart deeply relax into directly and simply hearing. What is it that enables us to move towards taking on being a Buddha? Or as one of my Asian teachers said, what makes one a true heir of the Buddha? There's a term used in Buddhism, ehipasika, come and see, ehipasika an invitation from the Buddha to come and see. Not to come and believe, but to come and see for ourselves what is true. To come and see in this way requires a great willingness and and courage that includes a growing faith that blossoms out of our own experience a willingness and courage to look deeply, directly, and honestly into the body, the heart, the mind, without relying on what others say, without relying on what others say is true through what we may have heard or read. To come and see in this way requires that we don't settle into the inertia of our habitual perceptions of the relationships to and our identifications with our inner and outer experiences. The willingness and courage to look directly, deeply, and honestly into the body, the heart, and the mind is the quality that keeps practice alive from the very beginning of our practice and on through the many, many years of our practice. I'd like to share a very small poem with you that was given to me a number of years ago by a Buddhist nun. 
by Rumi. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust mote, lunar moth. Love the candle. Taste your life. Put your shoes on, upside down. So this evening we'll explore this second factor, the second enlightenment factor. Investigation or discrimination of objects or investigation of states, as it's often translated, with mindfulness being the first factor, the mother factor. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness being needed in all instances, instances as a seasoning of salt in all sauces. Mindfulness is a refuge for the mind, a refuge for the heart. And as I mentioned, this is the factor, along with investigation, that affords us our greatest protection. Investigation, discrimination, is the activity of mindfulness, we could say. It's the activity of discernment. It illuminates the, the object. We see the object of our mindfulness clearly. Investigation has the potential to penetrate and illumine things, to illumine their particular individual characteristics, and to light things up right into their core, to show us their universal essence, to, in fact, illumine the true nature of things. This factor of enlightenment has the potential to dispel darkness, the darkness of delusion, the darkness of not seeing, the darkness of ignorance, of ignoring how it is. Investigation eliminates bewilderment and confusion. Investigation is like walking into a pitch-dark room with a bright flashlight. When things are brightly lit, what's already present is then clearly seen, clearly known, and confusion is dissipated. In our practice, Investigation means that we experience directly, without the mediation of concept. For example, and this can be a metaphor for any phenomena in the body or for any state of mind. So for example, a breath is known. Maybe we see it at the level of simply knowing in, knowing out. Investigation without putting on the glasses. 
And then we put on the glasses and directly know long breath or short or deep or shallow breath. Maybe connect with and know the rising, falling, or expansion, contraction, the movement of the breath directly. Or directly experience and know tightness, softness. And then we look through the microscope, the lowest power lens. The breath is known through the whole in-breath from beginning to end. The whole out-breath is known from beginning to end. And then maybe, much to our surprise, we find that each in-breath and each out-breath is particulated, not the smooth, ongoing experience that we're used to. And even though it's quite subtle, we feel it and know it very clearly in its particulation and see it's just happening without us controlling it. We relax more. Interest is even brighter. The microscope's lens powers up. The concept of breath falls away. Rising and falling movement in the belly is clearly felt and known. Maybe the most predominant experience is a particular flavor of vibration with each rising, and another particular flavor of vibration with each falling movement. Who's breathing? Who's breathing? And then maybe the microscope lens powers up again. We notice something happening in the heart just a split second before the vibration of the rising movement begins and just before the vibration of the falling movement begins. And so it might go. Breath isn't what we thought it was. Or at least for the moments we've stopped thinking about it and are just simply, directly, and mindfully investigating the experience with a deep and complete trust in these moments. A trust that this is just enough. Nothing else needs to be done. The mind, the heart, is open, receptive, spacious, and connected directly to experience. One of the activities that has been part of my life on and off over the years since I've been in my 20s is that I've done a number of portrait sculptures with the particular person being the live model, with a particular person being the live model for each piece of work. This work has been a deep and powerful direct practice and metaphor 
for practice for me. And at least in part, particularly in relation to the cultivation of insight into the enlightenment factors that we're exploring. So just to share a a little of this, as I think it may be a useful illustration for some of you. In order to create a likeness of a person in clay, a tremendous depth of mindfulness and investigation must take place. A head, its shape, the neck and shoulders, a face. How to see the whole of it and then, and then know it both in its wholeness and in its particulars so that the knowing can be transferred through the mind, heart, and body, and out through the hands and fingers into the clay. A daunting and actually impossible task if one doesn't begin to see it all as hundreds, maybe thousands of relationships that actually change with each angle of seeing. And so the subject's face begins to break down into a series of relational forms, forms that exist only in relationship to each other. The subject's face begins to break down into a series of relational and spatial Relation, relational forms and spatial relationships. There's no head, no face, no person as we ordinarily know it. There's just a series of relationships to be known. It's actually a very intimate process much more so than if I keep looking at the whole image. The completely unique characteristics of the face in front of me become very clearly and deeply known, but not as any fixed or separate entity. The universals of all human faces become known intimately. The concepts of solidity, fixedness, separateness lose their habitual potency and actually quite thoroughly fall away in moments. What is a nose, an eye, a chin? Seeing and knowing through the microscope of an open-hearted and deeply connected mindful investigation from changing angles, moment after moment, seeing and knowing the space between the inside corner of an eye in relationship to the downward slope of the eye's lower edge, in relation to the bulging curvature of the eyeball as it rounds out to touch the lower edge and corner of the skin around the eye, and on and on and on. 
and all of this seeing and knowing coming out of my fingers and forming the clay, little by little by little. And seemingly magically, a face emerges out of the clay, a face that bears the likeness and projects some of the quality of the liveliness of this human being sitting in front of me. It's actually uh, quite difficult to render this creative process into words. So I hope it's been at least somewhat communicative and somewhat helpful for you. It's so very close to our process in vipassana practice. Practice itself is an art and in many ways very close to the creative process on various levels, as I'm sure some of you know from your own experience. The nature of things quite naturally reveals itself. It's not hidden. We enter into the mystery through the intimacy of our practice, rather than staying at a distance, rather than staying separate from it. In very intimate, precise, and sometimes minute ways, through the direct experience afforded us by our practice, we come to know the not-self, not-separate, non-dual nature of things. Anything, all things, ordinary things. We could say that we touch into the absolute truth of this relative world. Mindfulness and investigation of states are grounded in an open-hearted, spacious receptivity to whatever is occurring. We're not lost in the forest of our experience. Investigation and discernment are our guides through what at times may feel like an impenetrable forest. Life can be challenging and difficult at times. Practice can be challenging and difficult at times. Not new news to any of you, I'm sure. It takes a deep willingness and a certain courage to traverse the path of awakening. As we more and more directly encounter and meet life as it is, we also encounter and gain the strength of heart and mind through the development of mindfulness and investigation to meet the various permutations of our conditioned resistance and our made-up beliefs, make-believe ideas of how we think it is or how we want it to be. Or we just simply encounter our often long-standing habits of a way of being, our way of being. 
in relationship to the feeling tone, for instance, of various experiences, or our habitual way of relating to the various states of mind that come up in relationship to what comes up in our life, what comes up in our practice. Sometimes this path of awakening might feel like the path of a spiritual warrior. Many people, much of the time, view experience and view their lives as a string of blessings or a string of curses. Through our practice, our life as our practice, we learn to not get caught up in the attachment to blessings, not get caught up in the aversion to curses. With practice as the ground of our life, we learn to relate to life and to view life as a continual opportunity to deepen our practice and understanding. With all of it affording, affording us the amazing opportunity of awakening, which at times can sometimes feel like spiritual warriorship. Not long ago it became clear that I needed a crown on one of my molars. So maybe from one point of view a curse. I'm severely allergic to all local and some general anesthetics. So Novocaine or any other anesthetic can't be used with dental work. Maybe another curse from a particular point of view. But I have a deep and strong practice. Definitely a great blessing. The first appointment with the dentist was quite a challenge. The challenge of continually relaxing and staying open to the experience of the moment. Focusing and connecting with all that was going on in my mouth and noticing the constant change of each sensation. And it's sometimes intensity or non-intensity. Being there with its beginning and ending. As soon as I would lose my concentration, mindfulness, and clarity of discernment, ignorance immediately moved in. What was merely pleasant, and there wasn't much of that actually, or unpleasant, quickly became very strong liking or disliking. And the moment then verged on becoming an unbearable moment. It was in moments a great surprise to me how easy it was to be there, to actually be there. As long as I was clearly and purely present just with what was happening. Time lost its ordinary parameters. 
I wasn't waiting for the end of anything. And in fact, there were surprising moments of feeling I could stay here forever and that that would be okay. The next day, I had to go back to the dentist for her to finish up the work. And I was quite tired and wondered if I had the strength of mind to do it again. Mostly, I did. Though at one point, my attention slipped away into a string of thoughts while the dentist did something that created a very, very strong sensation. At that moment, my body jerked in a strong reaction, which surprised both the dentist and myself, as this hadn't happened before. And then I was back again, just with what was happening, and all was well. So what is a curse? What is a blessing? As our practice takes deeper and deeper root, its blessing begins to permeate all the corners of our life. We can't expect or depend on something outside of our own mind and heart or someone else to do it for us, to tell us where and how things are. The invitation is ehipasika, come and see. We just simply need to connect directly with things right where we are with a willingness and the courage to take a deep and honest look right here, right now. When we connect and see clearly, the next step is right in front of us, one step at a time. I'd like to share a bit of a story with you of a hike that I took one autumn morning not too long ago. I went for a day-long hike with a friend up into the mountains just outside Taos, New Mexico, where I live. My hiking buddy is a longtime Dharma practitioner. And so we like to hike in silence and usually walk alone though not far along behind each other on the trail or in front of each other. And often we speak together only during rest breaks and during our lunch. Hiking days like this for me and for my friend are some of our most treasured non-retreat practice times. There's a deep and connected relationship through all of the sense doors to the surrounding world, and to our own bodily sensations and movement, and to the feelings and the various states that come up, come and go, 
in the mind and the heart as we take our time making our way up the mountain. As we were wending our way up through this particular rocky mountain landscape, and on this particular day, two young people came up behind us moving very fast, actually almost running up the mountain. And they each had a small yellow plastic object in their hand, which they were quite intently holding kind of up and out in front of them. We exchanged a cursory hello, and I asked them what the yellow thing was that they were holding. And I was told quickly back it was a GPS, as if I would know what that is. They were in such a hurry that there was absolutely no opportunity to ask them, what is a GPS? My friend, who knew a little bit about it, said that it's an instrument that tells you where you are. And as soon as she said this, we both looked at each other in a kind of amazement and began to laugh. And we, we laughed and we laughed and we laughed. We felt so tickled the experience somehow striking a funny bone in each of us. An instrument that tells you where you are. My friend said that that's why Native Americans we think, think we're so silly in some ways, because we don't know where we are. Where we were, where we are, was being connected with and known over and over and over again in so many ways and on so many levels as we were slowly walking up the mountain. The intermediary of a global positioning system, what the yellow plastic thing is called, seems so silly at that point and in that setting. This is a, a poem called Lost by David Wagoner. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree, a bush does, is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. The Buddha, with his great clarity and compassion, spoke about what he called the nutriment for the arising development, fulfillment, and perfection of the enlightenment factor of investigation of states. 
giving a wise and careful attention to beneficial and unbeneficial states, such as loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, suffering, its cause and its end, giving a wise and careful attention to the various so-called hindrances, seeing and knowing the particular individual essences of both beneficial and unbeneficial states, and seeing the three universal characteristics of unsatisfactoriness, ephemerality, impermanence, and the selfless, empty nature of all these states of mind and body. This is nutriment for the arising development, fulfillment, and perfection of the enlightenment factor of investigation of states. This is the primary nutriment, really, for all of the states, mindfulness, investigation, and the others. It's with this aspect of practice that the primary factor is the primary factor in countering ignorance. The Buddha tells us to carefully and wisely attend to wholesome and unwholesome, low and high, dark and bright states, that this is nutriment for the arising, the development, the fulfillment, and the protection of the enlightenment factor of investigation of states. He says we should ask questions and that we should reflect on the possibility of deep understanding. We're encouraged to associate with people who have understanding. And he suggests that we don't spend too much time with people who don't have understanding. He spoke about the internal purification of the heart and mind and the external personal cleanliness as being like the light of a lamp's flame that arises with a clean lamp bowl, wick and oil as its support. And that formations become evident to one who tries to comprehend them with a purified base, as the Buddha called it. He tells us that balancing the faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and understanding, nurture investigation. And he tells us to make a resolve to incline the mind, incline the heart towards this particular factor of enlightenment. Discrimination of bodily and mental states is a requisite for awakening, a requisite for the arising of wisdom. In this light, this particular enlightenment factor 
is spoken of as the wisdom factor. Investiga investigation is what quite naturally brings about the direct penetration of the truths, the direct experience of knowing the unsatisfactoriness and the constant discomfort of the tension, the stress we experience in trying to get a sustaining and permanent satisfaction from any given experience, mental or physical. Discrimination of states is what quite naturally brings about the direct knowing of the cause of our suffering, our grasping and clinging identification to our constantly changing physical and mental experience. So quite clearly and obviously then, the investigation, the discernment of states, is a most important requisite in the possibility of cutting through and letting go of, relinquishing the attachment, the clinging, relinquishing the identification that causes us so much pain. This is a quote from Japanese, a Japanese philosopher and teacher who wrote the book, The Way of Tea. They saw, before all else they saw, they were able to see. Ancient mysteries flew from this wellspring of seeing. The difference between the person with a mind unconsciously steeped in me, in mine, in I, and the one who lives and sees and knows through a mind steeped in mindful awareness is that within the narrowness of the mind of me, mine, and I, there's a strong identification with all of the hopes and all of the fears that arise. And one tends to get caught in these thoughts, in all of the multi-hued manifestations of these thoughts. When the mind, the heart, is steeped in the factors of mindfulness and investigation, one isn't very often caught and thrown off or ruffled or confused by inner and outer events. We see what is. We know it beyond the seeming appearance. We don't get caught nearly as often in hopes and fears in relationship to the moment's experiences. We let them come. We let them go. Our practice affords us the great gift of not clinging, not being attached and identified with experience all the time. What is, is just what is, moment to moment, more and more often.
the direct investigation and discrimination of states, body, heart, and mind, is what brings the deepest understanding. Otherwise, our understanding is only based on the intellect. It's merely cerebral understanding, a kind of imaginary understanding. And as I'm sure you know, at least some of the time, it's impossible to think our way out of tension, stress, confusion. It's impossible to think our way out of suffering. And as we know, at least some of the time, it's impossible to think our way into truly letting go. We can't think our way to freedom. Awakening is beyond or beneath the intellect. It's beyond or beneath concept. So how can we possibly use concept to get us there? When insight is born, it's so deep and integrated and so simple It's cellular, as someone once described their experience to me. Nisargadatta Maharaj tells us, the mind, the thinking mind, is interested in what happens, while mindful awareness is interested in the mind. The child is after the toy, but the mother watches the child, not the toy. The Buddha's instruction for us is abiding in mindfulness. She or he investigates and examines whatever bodily or mental state has arisen and embarks on a full inquiry into it. On whatever occasion, abiding in mindfulness, a yogi investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. On that occasion, the investigation of states, enlightenment factor, is aroused in him or her. And she develops it. And by development, it comes to fulfillment. So with investigation, we come into the light, the light of wisdom, we could say. In reference to his own enlightenment, the Buddha said, the eye is born, knowledge was born, wisdom was born, understanding was born, light was born. The capacity to be immediately, clearly, and spaciously present within oneself is a basic fruit of being an awake human being. From this immediacy of presence, this mindful presence, there's a very natural flow of wisdom and compassion that connects us in the healthiest and most appropriate ways 
to however life is unfolding, unfolding within our own body, mind, and heart, and in relationship to the life all around us. Rather than being caught up in our old, conditioned, and very often unskillful habits, mindfulness and the clear discrimination therein is the medicine or the tool for the deepest wisdom and compassion to arise. This, in turn, provides us with the gift of engagement at its best. An awakened person, a real human being, as Sado Upandita speaks of one who is awake, is a truly healed person. And the greatest gift that we can offer to all beings in this world. And so the second factor of enlightenment. If investigation of states is established in us, we know that it's present. If it's absent, we know that it's absent. As our practice deepens, we come to know how the unarisen enlightenment factor of investigation, discrimination, comes to arise. And we learn and come to know how its development comes about. I'd like to close the talk with a short piece called A Single Excellent Night that comes from the Majjhima Nikaya. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night. It is in her, in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has a single excellent night. And so let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.